Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high-conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the October 24th edition of Macro Minutes, uh, which I'm calling Finding Footing. Global yield curves have generally been moving higher and steeper since our last call, despite new geopolitical risks and a dovish tilt in recent central bank rhetoric, at least here in the U.S. For the last few sessions, there may have been some very nascent signs uh, that the momentum may be starting to waver a bit. So can bonds find some solid ground to stand on here, or do they still have further to fall? Uh, so I'm Blake Wynn, head of U.S. Rate Strategy. I'm going to be joined today by Jason Dahl, head of North American Rate Strategy, Euro Area Economist Gordon Scott, and Macro Rate Strategist Robert Thompson. First, I'll kick off speaking briefly about the U.S. And first, I wanted to address the FOMC meeting that's coming up next week. Um, I, I think that that meeting should be relatively tame. I think Powell and other speakers over the last few weeks have signaled a very clear preference for a pause, and markets are essentially priced for that now. We also, uh, if you remember, do not have any SEP dots at this meeting. So I think most of the focus is probably going to be on Powell's discussion around rising rates, uh, and financial conditions. And I think there might be some focus on any verbal updating or confirmation of the September dot plot to the extent that he does talk about that. Recall that the September dot still showed another hike this year, which as of the November meeting, assuming a pause, would have to be that December meeting. Our view, however, remains that July was the last hike in this cycle. There's also, over the last few weeks, been a lot of focus on the rising term premium, uh, mostly given the spare steepening we've had and the fact that after the September FOMC, uh, rates have continued to sell off, even though FOMC pricing to the Fed over the near term has r- remained very, very little changed on that. This is mostly uh, th- this conversation about term premiums mostly come in the context of both supply. Uh, we know there's lots of Treasury issuance coming down the pipe. Uh, we've got Treasury refunding announcement next week, where they're expected to once again raise coupon auctions, and the context of demand, where we have uh, the Fed pulling back uh, as they uh, complete their quantitative tightening program. You know, YCC relaxation from the Bank of Japan, this kind of well-known, um, you know, this, this kind of very well-publicized story about demand out in Japan and China, where they rem- uh, basically remain offline for buying treasuries and banks shrinking asset portfolios, etc. Interestingly, I think we may have entered a bit of a different phase of this term premium story, where I think further rises in term premium might be coming more from upside growth and inflation risks rather than this kind of supply and demand story. That's basically, you know, that would basically come to pass or, or continue if the data remains strong while the Fed seems very, very, uh, very axed to stay put and, and not hike rates again. I think we saw a, a, a microcosm of this in the response to Powell's speech last week, uh, where dovish me- uh, a dovish message was met with bear steepening rather than the bull steepening you might expect on dovish Fed speak. Uh, I think that's largely uh, because that speech came on the back of strong retail sales, which itself was following strong CPI and strong NFP data. If if you kind of sum that all up, I I think, you know, from a very simple level, good data plus the Fed resolutely on pause basically equals upside risk to gross and inflation, which could show up, uh, continue to show up as higher term premium. But I think all of that is really more upside risk to term premium at this point. At a higher level, I think the supply and demand impact should largely be priced at this point, with the risks around that factor being much more two-way from here. You know, while we're likely to see some continued flow effects as this new supply continues to come online over the coming years, I think after some very significant growing pains over this last year, investors and the street broadly, you know, their deficit and issuance forecasts shouldn't really be playing catch-up as much. I think we really right-sized those after some major upward revisions over the last year. Moreover, I think a lot of these downside demand concerns that I was mentioning before with 
overseas demand, particularly out of Japan and China, bank shrinking, asset portfolios, et cetera. That's all extremely well socialized and I think uh, broadly expected to continue, which to me really means that the risk may be more skewed to the upside now if uh, we do see demand from overseas start to pick up or if we see any kind of developments which start to move that in the other direction. Moreover, I think while many seem to be using the term term premium very interchangeably with supply issues, it's actually worth noting that supply issues on the long run are not really a great explainer for sustained moves in term premium. If you look at the long-run declines in term premium that's been going on since the vote years in the 70s, I think it's been driven a lot by other factors such as central bank transparency and credibility, regulatory changes, demographics, growth in global demand for reserve assets, other things like this. If you look at you know, those factors, very few of those are likely to reverse from here. So really, the only kind of bump you get in term premium is from the supply and demand story, which, as I said, tends to be very temporary. So I don't really expect term premium to be returning to, say, pre-GFC levels and think we may be closer to the end of that story than the beginning. Overall, though, still pretty neutral on duration and curve right now. I, I think there's just a lot of chop in the markets right now. There's very crowded positioning, which kind of spooks me and shorts and steepeners. Uh, we've got this whole kind of back and forth between strong data, looming geopolitical risks, and a dovish Fed. And I think overall, the market just seems very antsy and, and without strong conviction. I think you just have to look at yesterday's, you know, yesterday's session where we saw a major reaction to an offhand tweet by a large investor. Um, I, I don't think you get that kind of reaction to something so minor unless markets are very, very jittery. I think more medium term horizon, we're still expecting data to slow a bit into year end, not something you know, very bad or, or a significant turn in the data, but at least what I would consider some continued normalization and enough to pull yields back down towards the bottom of you know, this, this new higher range that we seem to be in. So there, um, let me go ahead and turn it over to Jason, who will talk a little bit more about the, the Canada side. Okay, great. Thanks, Blake. Uh, so today I'm going to dedicate my time discussing the Bank of Canada outlook, what they'll do tomorrow what surprises to look out for in the statement and NPR, and what is expected after the October 25th meeting. So our view since the last hike in July was that the bank would be on hold until they started an easing cycle in uh, the second half of 2024. And over the past week, market pricing has moved from a 50-50 chance of a hike to now pricing a no-change outcome that's consistent with our long-held view. In our opinion, it's been clear that the Bank of Canada doesn't want to hike anymore unless they're absolutely forced to. And the evolution of data that we've seen uh, over the past couple of months, below trend growth, for example, uh, loosening of the labor market, uh, no smoking gun from the recent uh, business outlook survey, and a favorable CPI print on sequential core measures does provide enough room for the bank uh, to stay on the sidelines, we think. Then the question becomes, you know, what will the policy language be and where could the surprises uh, be? So in the policy statement, um, they should retain optionality to hike further, even if they think it's a low probability outcome. There's absolutely no incentive for them to remove or alter uh, the phrase that more hikes might be needed. And if anything, they could bolster their hawkish rhetoric by complementing the risk of more hikes with uh, discussion about uh, higher for longer. Now, the Bank of Canada growth forecast, they have been optimistic. They should be revised uh, materially lower in the uh, NPR. Uh, the biggest downward adjustment should be uh, Q3, uh, followed by uh, downward adjustments to Q4, and that would have a knock-on impact uh, to 2024 as far as uh, lowering that. 
On the inflation side, um, they could be revised up in the short term, the forecast from the bank, uh, but sticky in the long term. So we think the kind of end point for 2024 probably stays uh, unchanged. If the Bank of Canada does not hike tomorrow on October 25th, we think the window of opportunity for them to hike again is effectively uh, closed. And the reason for that is that our economists think that Q3 prints a small negative for GDP. Um, Q2 already printed a small negative. Uh, so optic is going to be um, you know, challenging uh, also from a political angle for them to do anything in December or uh, January. And the reason for that is one can envision the media headlines uh, we get the GDP data in early December. The bank meeting is later in December. Um, the headlines are going to be Canada's in a recession, possibly, even though it's a small one and it's very technical in nature. That's going to be the spin uh, from the media, and that really uh, will make it difficult for the bank uh, to do anything. So the only reason they you know, could hike going forward if we get a big bounce in growth, which we think is quite unlikely, or that price pressures would have to escalate uh, quite materially uh, to tilt the balance towards uh, them going again. I do think that sticky inflation is probably insufficient. We need to get price pressures uh, increasing. And lastly, I wanted to highlight the insights from our central bank uh, AI site product. And this uh, automatically uh, reads and quantifies and scores uh, central bank communication into a hawkish and dovish spectrum. And the bank's overall stance on this metric does remain quite hawkish. Uh, but the degree of hawkishness is less than what we saw six to 12 months ago. And this is consistent with our uh, qualitative view that the bank will retain a hawkish uh, stance, but the nuance of their communications is tilting towards more neutral, given what's happening on the uh, growth side. And since the last meeting on September 6th, the quantitative scoring has been broadly unchanged. And this has been more consistent uh, historically with a no-change outcome at the uh, next uh, policy meeting. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Blake. Thanks for that, Jason. And uh, and also, thank you very much for highlighting our new Central Bank AI site tool. Uh, please check that out or uh, ask us if, if you have any interest. Um, with that, let's go over to Gordon and uh, uh, talk Europe. Thanks, Blake. Um Similar to the picture outlined earlier by um, both uh, Jason um, and Blake, the focus in Europe at present is on uh, central banks on hold. Over the next week and a bit, we will get two central bank meetings in Europe, um, starting this week with Thursday's ECB meeting. Now, we expect um, the ECB to keep rates unchanged um, at their current level of 4%. The ECB's forward guidance has made it pretty clear that they think that they've now reached the terminal rate, and data um, since the last meeting has uh, really done little um, to shake that impression. Core inflation, for example, is tracking slightly below the ECB's projections, while growth, uh, while the leading uh, indicators for growth also continue to remain weak. Instead, um, the debate within the governing council is shifting to QT and measures to address excess liquidity. In particular, um, within the governing council at present, there's been quite a, a vigorous debate over the potential early end of reinvestments of maturing securities uh, from the, the ECB's emergency pandemic era purchase program. There's also as well a debate in the governing council around the possibility of tweaks um, to banks' um, reserve requirements. 
Now, we don't expect um, any of these changes to be announced at this month's meeting, um, but we think it's likely to be an area of discussion and certainly something that is likely to feature in both the post-meeting press conference and the subsequent meeting minutes. Looking slightly further ahead, the focus next week um, will move to the, the Bank of England. Now, before the September meeting, we thought that it was likely a, a case of one and done um, in terms of rate hikes. Now, the Bank of England sort of unexpectedly opted to keep rates on hold at its last meeting, and we now think it's a case of none and done, i.e. we expect the Bank of England to keep rates unchanged at their current level uh, 5.25%. Indeed, we think that the bar is likely quite high for the Bank of England to revert to um, rate hikes again, and we think that you would need potentially quite big upward surprises um, in the data um, for it to do so. And with that, I will pass um, back to Blake. All right, thanks a lot for that. And uh, finally, we will uh, jump over to macro strategist Robert Thompson. Thanks, Blake. We take a slightly different approach in Australia to working out where yields can or should get to. Uh, and in particular, in benchmark 10-year space, we really are a hostage to what treasuries in the, uh, are doing, uh, where we essentially price as a spread to them. Uh, so it's a bit of a, a cop-out, but it's entirely true to say that where, US, uh, where, where Aussie yields can get to, uh, at least from the belly up, is almost entirely dependent upon the price of money in the US at the moment. Um, further down the curve, it's more aligned with uh, RBA expectations. So there is some more independence there. Um, we have some views there we can outline as well. Um, but when coming to the curve, it leaves the curve as a bit of a residual uh, in that sense. So it can have some quite different shapes to elsewhere in the world. And indeed, at the moment, given the RBA's cash rate is only 4.1% versus 5 plus uh, for most dollar block type peers, uh, it's leading to quite a steep curve in Australia. Um, but just focusing once more on that Aussie-US spread dynamic at the moment, uh, just to set the scene a bit, so that spread's been in a plus 30, minus 30 range since about September 2022 uh, with no clear catalyst for a breakout. Uh, we tend to think um, that Aussie should actually underperform a little uh, on the break-even side, given the RBA cash rate is so much lower. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in this call. Um, but in reality, it seems at the moment the price is more being determined by um, the real yield spread, which... There's probably got some supply drivers there with Aussie's bond supply quite low versus obviously much higher in treasuries, and that's keeping that spread on the negative side. Um, but like I said, in, in the broader scheme of yields, we really are just being led by the US moves there. So wherever treasuries get to is very roughly about where Aussie yields should, should be at the moment in 10-year space. Um, then further down the front of the curve, uh, we do have a very key inflation print coming up on our time Wednesday which will set the scene for the RBA's uh, November decision. Uh, and there we, we think the market, which is pricing in about a 30% chance uh, of a hike right now, uh, and was as high as 40% yesterday, is if anything slightly overplaying the chances of a hike. There's been nothing uh, in the data run so far since the last meeting to suggest the RBA needs to hike. We know they don't really want to hike again, uh, despite them being so far below most peers. Uh, so we suspect the hurdle's higher for CPI. It's going to have to be a pretty big beat for them to be convinced that they're going that they need to hike again at this meeting. Certainly doesn't rule out the chance of hikes later, including into next year. Um, but that means in the short term, we actually see some potential uh, for Aussie app performance, so yields a bit lower in the very front end here. Um, but the back in a different story. Uh, so that's our sort of views on the curve for now. 
Um, uh, it's just have to re-emphasize that, uh, broadly speaking, the globe sets the price for us rather than Australia specifically, especially from the belly up. Um, but yet at the front end, uh, we do think that although the risks are that they might need to hike again a little bit later, uh, and indeed we think the IBA will be cutting quite a lot later than other central banks, uh, there might be some short-term tactical opportunities there to, to run in long. Uh, thanks, that's it for me. All right, thanks for that, Robert. And with that, we will wrap up this October 24th edition of Macro Minute. Thanks for dialing in. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.